Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Key Ingredient Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Norman Love, founder of Norman Love Confections. Norman started his career as a pastry chef and has grown his passion into a globally recognized brand. Norman, thanks for joining me today. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So I'm really excited about this interview. I mean, I uh, obviously I'm a fan of your your product, and I want to learn more about that, but also your journey from you know where you started to your success. So if you don't mind for those listening and watching, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Of course. Uh, it started at a very early age with me. I had a love for art. And at an early age, my grandmother, mother were always very active in the kitchen during holidays and so forth. And they both were very competitive as desserts came. And it was a time that made people happy. And, you know, for me, it was, um, you know, a uh, uh, an incredibly um, memorable moment in, in in my early days of you know making things um, with love to uh, and made people happy, and my love for art at an early age, um, I found the culinary arts, and um, I, I I set forth I think at a really I mean second grade I knew that I wanted to be a chef. Um, Did you really? Wow! And as I um, began my career, um, fifteen, sixteen at ice cream parlors, I had moved from Pennsylvania. Um, I was an avid ice hockey fan player um, with hopes and dreams of playing in college hockey when I was younger. And my family moved to Hollywood, Florida in 1973. Um, at that time in South Florida, there wasn't a whole lot of ice hockey. And hmm. uh, I needed to find, refi you know, re refine myself. And I, I, I found work. I found um, kitchens. I found making ice cream was another way, again, to make people happy. And once again, you know, gravitated to the sweet side of the kitchen. Um, my first pastry chef job was in Deerfield Beach, Florida. I was uh, 18 years old, uh, working with a Welsh pastry chef in a rest very busy restaurant, um, and began to learn um, and absolutely passionately enjoyed um, the whole dessert thing. You know, the bakery, um, the smells, um, the excitement of decorating and creating and expressing art. Um, my last job before I opened my business in 2001. I was the corporate chef for Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. I was in charge of all the pastry and baking operations globally. Um, what that entailed was um, everything from corporate purchasing directives to opening um, special events, troubleshooting. Um, I opened 38 hotels globally for Ritz-Carlton and I was traveling over 40 weeks a year, sometimes months at a time. Um, but as a culinarian, it was an incredibly uh, accelerated education, having the ability to visit so many different countries, experiencing different cultures, um, ingredients, cooking methods. And for me, I mean, I've been all over Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Korea, Japan, mainland China, Hong Kong, and on and on, and I, the Middle East, and of course, Europe. Um, and I traveled extensively for 12 years. Um, wow. And it was a sacrifice, a personal sacrifice, um, but uh, a professional education. And uh, I had two small children at that time, and they often uh, uh, would take me to the airport. And they thought, I think, I think they thought I worked at the airport when <laughs> they were very young. Sure. Um, but it was. Uh, a huge sacrifice of my life, my personal life, um, a strain for my wife, of course, and uh, for my children, uh, as I was constantly on the road. Um, in 2000, and uh, excuse me, in 1999, I was given the opportunity to captain 
a pastry team, which was called the Coupe du Monde. It was the World Cup of Pastry. It was a competition that took place in Lyon, France, biannually, still does today, and is the biggest stage for pastry chefs in the world. And basically comprised of three chefs in a kitchen, nine hours, specific criteria of artistry as well as edibles in front of tens of thousands of people throughout Europe, um, televised through Europe and was a really big deal and took us 18 months of preparation. This finely orchestrated um, uh, ballet in the kitchen for nine hours. I obviously was the chocolate guy. I was always leaned towards chocolate no matter where I was in the world. Um, chocolate was always the most well-received dessert. And I always gravitated to what made people happy going back to my childhood. Um, so it was an easy transition for me. And it was uh, what I was, uh, you know, as the captain, I, I did the chocolate centerpiece, the artistry, as well as, you know, involved in all of the edibles. And our team came back in 1999. We had won uh, a bronze medal out of 22 countries. We were um, on the podium. So for us, it was a wonderful accomplishment. And um, I had a friend who was um, very much involved. He owned a magazine in New York called Chocolatier Magazine, and it was pretty instrumental in my career early on. And uh, we both shared a dream. We both shared a vision that if there's Wimbledon, a French Open, a U.S. Open, why couldn't there be another pastry competition in the world? Because the Coupe de Monde, the World Cup, was the only one of its kind. Sure. And at that time, they gave away 9,000 euros for first prize. And in 99, that was about $9,000. And we felt as though if we gave away tremendous prize money, we would draw the Michael Jordans of the world, the pastry <laughs> chefs that can't find the time. It's an incredible commitment to compete on a, on a global level, you know, an international level. Um, and the money involved in raising money and, uh, you know, to promote the team and to get the team to Europe to compete was, you know, a big effort. So we gave away, we created a first competition in Beaver Creek, Colorado um, in 2001. Um, TV Food Network came and televised, and it happened to be the warmest day in the history of the Farmer's Almanac. Wow. And wasn't a very conducive environment for international professionals to be successful. So all the planning and all the hard work and putting together an incredible international competition turned into a difficult situation for many of the chefs in a warm climate. So the second year, TV Food Network came back, and we learned that American consumers loved to watch pastry chefs and makeshift kitchens doing this artistic expression. It later turned into a television show on TV Food Network called The Challenge. Our competition moved to Las Vegas. We had a bigger audience. It gained global traction. It was the most talked about competition. And I left the Ritz-Carlton for this reason. I had been struggling to balance my life. I had been struggling to rejoin my family. And I, um, and I saw that this was an opportunity to leave corporate America, um, the job that I loved, but traveled extensively and had an opportunity to make a living and give back to the industry. We created a educational symposium called the World Pastry Forum, where I brought the best pastry chefs in each of their categories for an educational week, symposiums, two, two seminars a day. Um, students were coming from all over the world and then entry into this international pastry competition, making it the most comprehensive um, dessert week ever. And the world recognized it. And we began to gain traction and we began to make a few dollars. And um, TV Food Network was, ratings were growing. Sure. And 
I thought that I had found that balance of life, but I was very nervous. You know, I was in my 40s. I had two children. I had left a steady income and probably the best pastry chef job, corporate <laughs> chef in the job in the world. Yeah. And I was nervous sitting in a friend's medical building, 600 square foot office, um, worried about, you know, my income. Yeah, I was entering at a very late part of my life, I felt, uh, a whole new direction of, um, of excitement, but had little knowledge in production and understanding television and understanding, you know, that side of it. It's a whole other world for you. It sure. really was. Yeah. And um, so I decided to start making chocolates in my office. I bought a stainless steel table and a reach in little refrigerator. And I of course had all the tools. I had so many contacts in the chocolate manufacturing world that all the bat manufacturers were sending me chocolate to use. And I began this artistic express chocolate. You see, I always had this very artsy eye. I always felt like food needed to be beautiful. You know, Americans love to eat with their eyes. And I wanted to create this artistic expression, you see, because there was, chocolates looked the same to me. If they were La Maison du Chocolat from Paris or they were Whitman Sampler, they looked the same in the box. And that element of surprise, that beautiful artistic um, surprise, that wow that existed in the dining um, uh, rooms, didn't exist in chocolates. So I began to create this artistic expression by applying colored cocoa butters to the chocolate and creating, you know, this, this expression, this artistic chocolate and the world, my friends around the world gave me so much, you know, jazz that you can't put red on chocolate. You can't put <laughs> green on chocolate, but I was an American trying to make singular flavors that were easily identified for Americans, we were learning about ultra premium chocolate. Europeans have been going to the chocolate shop forever. That's where you buy chocolate here. You go to the grocery store, not necessarily a chocolate shop. Sure. So we were, I was began educating, I think our customers here in South Florida, Southwest Florida um, on true artisanal product, which means using fresh ingredients. It means to be consumed in a short period of time. But when you open that box, it was this artistic wow, that wow factor that existed everywhere else in the dining. So I wasn't the first to, I didn't create the technique, but I was the first to put it on chocolate. And um, we fast forward now 22 years. I was working alone in an office and USA Today wrote an article. This is the month after 9-11, October of okay, 2001. 2001. And I thought I would sell chocolates to the hospitality industry, <laughs> which had been, you know, Obviously, it had been gone to zero nearly uh, after 9-11. Yeah. Corporate America wasn't traveling. And um, in fact, I was in Las Vegas um, at the bakery show, which was every three years looking for packaging on 9-11. Um, and it was a, a bit of a stumble, I think, coming out of the blocks for our little company. But I was really trying to supplement income just to try to make something special and sell them to friends. I didn't know how to ship the chocolate. It's too hot here in Florida. How could you possibly ship chocolate in a UPS truck or FedEx <laughs> truck that's 120 degrees in the summer? Sure. So I would drive them from Marco to Tampa to friends in the hotel business that I knew because I was so involved in networking and recruiting for the company for Ritz. I, I just knew a lot of chefs around the world. So and you they, did that yourself? You were driving around? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, my wife was a dental assistant. And um, after the USA Today article came out in January of 2022, it started in October of 21, um, naming me the top 10 chocolates, 
to buy for Valentine's Day hmm. in the United States. We weren't even a company yet. I was just making chocolates. Wow. We were under the radar. I was just supplementing some income. You know, at, I was in the production business. Sure. If you recall. And um, from there, everything started. I was going to say, was that a big, that was a big boost, I would imagine. Sure. Yeah. I didn't have a credit card machine. If you recall back on Daniels Parkway, um, there was an ATM and a little uh, gas station on the west side of, of 75. I would send customers to the ATM <laughs> to get cash because I didn't have a credit card machine. I was really just wanting to make some chocolates to help supplement my income as we began to develop the production business. Sure. It was shortly after that Godiva knocked on my door and said, we see this brand new you know, style of chocolates and we're losing some market share and branding. Would you be interested in making chocolates for us? I wasn't in the chocolate business. I was just really just supplementing income. You know, through a long negotiation, I decided to do a test pilot for them in 2002. Um, 11 Neiman Marcuses and 11 of their top stores in the United States I made out of that 600 square foot space with a couple friends from Ritz that I asked to come help me. And my kids, my wife's friends, we were packaging chocolate through the night wondering, what am I doing? <laughs> I was trying to balance my life. I was trying to slow down. Sure. And it turned out to be the biggest success of new release in, I think, the history of their company back then. Wow. And uh, they came back to me, the 350,000 pieces I made for them, they asked if I could make 1.3 million pieces. And I said, no, I'm not in the chocolate <laughs> business. And I built a factory. And uh, today we have um, around 150 employees, um, two factories, one that produces entirely chocolate and confectionery, nearly 7 million pieces a, a year. And the other factory is um, producing all the pastry, the bakery, and the gelato, for all of our retail stores and a few of the wholesale accounts that we that we um, we cater to, um, and uh, a very active e-commerce platform today is obviously continually growing. Um, COVID certainly accelerated that a few sure. years ago, and um, we've invested <clears throat> a lot of time into um, creating you know an e-commerce platform with a lot of room for growth we did a big renovation last year to help us build productivity and produce more chocolate because we had uh, really hit the ceiling a few years ago um, and then expanded our shipping receiving fulfillment and packaging to thirty thousand square feet off mm -hmm. property so that we can facilitate all of the uh, e-commerce and wholesale customers and corporate gifting customers that uh, um, have uh, have contributed to the growth Wow. Um, there was so much there that I want to get to. So if you don't mind, maybe we'll backtrack with a few things. <clears throat> Excuse me. So a couple of things. You mentioned being an artist when you were young. And I found that intriguing because what you do is art, right? What kind of, was it drawing? I mean, what, what kind of art? I think at a really early age, I wanted to be a cartoonist. I used to, Did you really? I used okay. to enjoy um, drawing. I never was really talented enough, I think, to, uh, to ever really pursue a, a profession. But I've always loved art. I love sculpture. I love glass blowing. I love creative craft like art. Um, I, I mean, I love all mediums of art. So, you know, food was my medium. It was the way that I could express art, you know, whether it be on a plated dessert or it could be a beautiful cake or a chocolate artist or artistic centerpiece that would be a sculpture. Sure. So it was my way and my release and my way of expressing art. And when you were a kid playing hockey and having this interest in making chocolate, I mean, that, that's, that's a very different type of hobby. Tell me about that. I mean, what was yeah. that like? Well, I don't know if necessarily that the chocolate <clears throat> thing was such an early age. It was, you know, influence of grandmother and aunts and mother 
um, always actively competing, you know, f- with desserts. It was always a big deal. In, and also in spending town. time together, which is a really big thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, for me, it was, uh, it was like the first, the first taste of, um, seeing that how much people really enjoy food and the importance of sitting at a, at a dinner table, um, and bringing people together and expressing love through food. Wow. So let's go back to the art part because I'm looking right now for those who actually could see this, um, this is kind of like Tiffany to me, right? I mean, when I look at this box, so what made you, when did you go from being, being the pastry chef to making chocolates to deciding that you were going to market yourself in a way that you do that? Cause this is beautifully packaged. And of course, when I open this, it's going to be even more beautiful, but tell me about that a little bit. Well, I've always had a huge entrepreneurial spirit since a very early, early age. Um, and you know, I always saw myself as owning a business or owning my own business. Um, and primarily for the reason that I've just, even at a young age, I mean, I've always loved business. I've always had a business mind. And a lot of chefs, you know, not necessarily have strong business minds, but I felt like I've been blessed with, you know, um, ability to, to make desserts, but also um, understand business. And certainly I've learned a lot along the 22 years um, that we've been in business, a lot of adversity and um, learning to pivot and learning to, to, um, to grow a business. Um, but if you go back to the early days with Ritz and understanding to listen to your customers and to understand your customers and our customers, when I began to make these chocolates used to call them jewelry and that they reminded them of jewels or they reminded them of, you know, they're too pretty to eat or, oh my gosh, they're just so beautiful. I can't eat them. Sure. So it was a lot of the inspiration in designing the packaging to look like a jewelry box. And there was definitely some, um, some thought to the madness early on. Um, and that's where, uh, the, the shape came from. The color was, um, I used to purchase packaging prior to being able to afford proprietary packaging through a company in Montreal that would bring packaging from France and Italy, beautiful chocolate packaging. And I could buy a hundred of these or 50 of those. And we were just starting out. And one day I received the box in that chartreuse like color and it was with Brown. And I thought, wow, this is really a beautiful combination. And we adopted the brand from there. Today we bring in um, 10 40 foot containers of packaging um, along with some domestic manufacturers that we use as well. Um, but yeah, the business has grown and we have, uh, we purchase a lot of boxes now. So what are the busiest times of year? Obviously Valentine's day, Christ- Easter. Christmas is actually the busiest time for us. Is it really? It's because it's the longest holiday. So corporate gifting begins in November. You know, a lot of, you know, a lot of companies around the country, um, that uh, that gift our products to to their clients and we do a good job of drop shipping to our clients um and then all the way through you know december 24th our retail stores are crazy busy so it's the longest holiday it's definitely the most volume of chocolate that we produce in a short period of time is christmas wow so what percentage of the business now is corporate gifting versus retail well retail is still about 50 percent of our business um, and the e-commerce business just continually grows. And we have really spent a lot of effort in surrounding ourselves with um, uh, very skillful digital marketing and social media and trying to help to, uh, to, to push and to grow our e-commerce. We do a very good job in receiving a, an order and, and shipping an order to a customer around the United States. So it's a, certainly an area that we have a lot of interest. Our corporate gifting, we haven't even 
tapped. You know, we've just hired Yossi, um, our new corporate um, director of, uh, of, of sales. And she comes with us a tremendous amount of experience. And uh, we see endless opportunities in the corporate gifting world. Sure. You know, and it's not just for holiday. I mean, there's so many different companies, types of companies that gift all year round. And um, we've, we see a lot of potential and inevitably more boots on the ground in different parts of the country. Yeah, what, what is the vision? I mean, do you, so how many actual locations do you have right now? Six retail stores Six, that we okay. operate between Sarasota and Naples. We are aggressively looking to um, expand. We're ready to sign the lease. It's uh, at the legal team right now for West Palm Beach. Um, we see 10 more stores on the East Coast from Palm Beach to Miami. Wow. So we are um, struggling to find quality real estate. Um, coming out of COVID, there was a lot of companies coming to Florida and still <laughs> and come still to are, Florida. yeah. So we are, um, you know, working hard uh, with some real estate teams uh, on the East Coast to continually identify. Um, we see Boca. We're working on one in Boca right now and Delray right now. Um, Boynton Beach, we'll see Fort Lauderdale, and obviously North Miami is a huge, and South Miami are big areas for us, with eventually Orlando, Tampa, St. Petersburg will will happen. Wow. We love brick and mortar. We like brick and mortar because not only are they profitable, but it helps to build brand awareness. It helps to build um, um, uh, visibility. You see customers here in Florida, a lot of tourists, a lot of snowbirds that come down and experience our brand, go back to either north, Northeast or Midwest, um, gift, and it all roads lead to e-commerce. So, sure. So we're looking to, to push, to, do, to make a big push over the next five years in, uh, in retail. And do you see yourself going out of the state of Florida at some point? Or? I think eventually. eventually. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of potential in the state of Florida. So, But yes, I think that, that that's probably an accurate um, yeah. Sure. Assessment. Well, so going from a passion to an entrepreneur, two different things, right? And I know you highlighted this a little bit, but we do have a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this podcast. What are some of the lessons you've learned? I mean, because again, there's there's one thing to love to be a pastry chef, love, love to cook, love to draw, love to do all different types of things, but it's also very different. We see this with physicians all the time, right? Because physicians go to school to learn, obviously, how to, how to be a, a doctor. And then all of a sudden, they have to market their business. They have to learn other things, hiring. What are some of the lessons that you've learned? I think the most important lesson um, over these 22 years has been to never compromise the integrity of the product. I think oftentimes entrepreneurs, business owners start something and they gain traction. They gain popularity. The business begins to, to move north. Um, they see some success and they lose focus on the product and they begin to focus on the almighty dollar. And mm -hmm. I think that's a recipe for destruction. I said, so for me, it's always been about how good, not how much. And you have to focus on the product every day. You have to focus on service every day. They're the two most important things that we do. Um, I'll tell you a story that, um, touched my career and certainly, um, affected my life. So I opened 38 hotels for Ritz-Carlton over the course of my life. And if you've, any of you or ever, listeners have ever opened a hotel, 38 is a lot of hotels to open <laughs> in, a, in a lifetime. One's usually enough. <laughs> and um, Horst Schultze, who was the CEO for Ritz-Carlton and certainly the, the man behind the brand for so many years, when I started, there was only nine hotels in Ritz-Carlton. And today, I, I don't even know how many they have, many. But um, it was a very family, very tight-knit um, group with strong philosophical values. Mm -hmm. 
And my first job was in the Ritz-Carlton St. Louis. I had come from California. Um, I had a small son. Um, I wanted to, uh, I was given an opportunity to be a pastry chef for the Ritz-Carlton. They were certainly the top or one of the top brands uh, of luxury hospitality in the world. And it was a privilege to be part of it. And I was sitting at orientation my first day. And during the course of all the openings, I listened to this more than a hundred times. Horst Schultze would always find it. Um, uh, it was imperative for him to speak to the all new staff first day because he believed that emotional, significant emotional events, you had an opportunity to penetrate behavior. And that first day of a new job is a pretty emotional event. Sure. So I'm sitting there totally intimidated. <laughs> Can I, am I worthy? Do I have the skills to, to be successful? And he spoke about that day, a baseball player. And he said, if the baseball player today hits three home runs, is he successful? And of course, the 500 employees are all sitting there as intimidated as I was, and nobody answers. <laughs> so, well, of course he's successful. Will that baseball player get a new contract? No, not necessarily. Well, tomorrow night, this baseball player hits three more home runs. Is the baseball player successful? And everyone's sitting there, maybe a little bit easier now, they say, yes, he's <laughs> successful. Well, will the organization give him a new contract? No, not necessarily. Over the course of the season, if this baseball player continually overachieved, continually maybe won the batting title, maybe helped the team you know, contribute to winning the World Series, would the organization potentially look at this individual, the new contract? And this is the part that I believe sitting there that day that really affected and changed the way that I think. You see, as a young kid, I always pointed north to say, I want to be successful one day. I want to be an entrepreneur. I was instilled a huge work ethic and always motivated, tireless motivation to be the best, always going to work to be better than yesterday. And I had this desire of always wanting to be successful. I want to be successful one day. Hmm. You see what Horst Schultze taught the team that day was, you see, success is every day. You go to work every day to be successful. And what the future is called is reward. And if you think about that, if you don't go to work to be better than yesterday, you don't go to work to be excellent. You don't go to work to be the best. Through hard work and being the best, I guess you're rewarded. And I thought about that long and hard and said, you know what? Success is not the future. Success is every day. Wow. That, that might be the most memorable thing anyone said on this podcast, Norman. Thank you for that. Um, very, very well said. I, I want to also get an idea of the psyche that was involved when you made the decision to leave the Ritz-Carlton. Because I know you mentioned that you were in a very stable position. You had a great job. You had a great career. I know you were missing your family. You weren't around as much as you'd like to. And as a parent, I certainly understand and could appreciate that. What was it really like? I mean, really bring me into that moment. And was it a moment or was it over the course of weeks, months, years? I mean, what really built up that you said, I'm willing to trade all of this in, all of this security and success for the unknown? No, if it was one thing that caused me to, to make that decision, um, you know, 11 and a half-ish years, 12 years of um, working hard. Um, and 
learning, experiencing, um, networking, being part of um, a very successful organization was extremely rewarding, professionally rewarding for sure. me. Um, I was tired. I was, I wouldn't say burnout, but I was tired. I was tired of traveling. Um, I was away months sometimes and um, I was tired and I was looking for that balance that so many food and beverage people look for sure. in life, which is not always so easy to I find. Say, does it really exist? Yeah. Um, I'm still searching. <laughs> um, and I think that um, the competition created a new avenue, a new opportunity for income, a new exciting and much more balanced life that I could stay at home versus being away all the time and missing you know, the sporting events, the church recitals, the school plays and so forth. Um, and to, uh, to rejoin my family. So I don't think it was an easy transition because I'm in this 600 square foot room, this office that was part of a friend's medical building and they had jazzy two wheelchairs on the wheel, on the wall. And here you go from a hundred miles an hour for many, many years to sitting in an office behind a desk. I used to get in the wheelchair and zip around the office wondering, what am I doing? <laughs> I am like totally bored. Sure. Um, but you know, a funny story with, with, with us starting this, um, this international pastry competition and this television show is that back when, so we're just, you know, we're young, we're, uh, we're young, uh, um, uh, 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 at this, at this, you know, producing television, um, we were, we were ex executing television shows for, um, high noon productions who sold them to TV food network. And I found myself, um, later on when we first got TV, my partner and I were high-fiving ourselves saying we finally made it because sponsorship dollars, television, the biggest visibility will help to, you know, it to help to boost, sponsorship dollars and the sponsorship dollars are what's fueling the events and our income. And in hindsight today, looking back, we created this show, created this show called the challenge where pastry chefs and makeshift kitchens over a course of time created artistry and carried them to a table for judging. And I'm thinking, we got we and and the, and of course our competition, which was getting televised, and we're just thinking we got the the the, the pinnacle of of advertisement of exposure of visibility, and in fact, if I was a little bit smarter and a little bit wiser, I felt as though we started reality culinary television. Well, it and sounds never, like and it. never knew it. <laughs> and when for, you were telling me that, that's exactly what I was thinking. If I had been a little wiser, mm -hmm. and perhaps you know we got a production company together and we were producing this um, versus executing and selling them. Um, maybe it would be a different outcome, but I'm very blessed today. And I feel very fortunate that um, our local community has supported um, the things that we make every day. And uh, for that, I'm very grateful for how things have, uh, have, uh, have found their way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about the creativity part of what you do. Um, so when I look at the product here, I say, I mean, it, it's just perfection, right? I mean, everything is every little detail. You see the details that we don't, of course, but how do you continue to evolve the creativity that's involved in your product? Because that, that you could just continue to produce what you do, but I'm sure every so often you want to make something a little bit different. 
you know, let's be honest, as the business has grown, my responsibilities as the CEO and operating a company um, requires a lot more time than my kitchen time. Mm -hmm. Um, So what's important in growing an organization? And for me, it's always about finding extremely accomplished professionals, surrounding yourself with incredibly accomplished professionals and empowering your team to be as good as they can be. Give them the tools necessary to be successful and allow them to be creative and to be successful. So we have a lot of long-standing staff members who have developed, who have brought so much to, um, to Norman Love Confections and have molded and assisted in molding of who we are today. So it's a collaborative effort in creating newness in trying to stay proactive, trying to be, stay the pioneer versus following trends. Um, you know, we were the first to start this, so we feel there's a need to continually push the bar and creating, you know, line extensions and fun holiday lines and new and innovative flavors and designs and so forth. So it's an ongoing effort, um, but surrounded myself with, um, you know, incredible people. You know, Dan Forgay has been with me for 15 years and he runs the entire chocolate production. And Dan came um, 15 years ago and told me he can give me one year and has been now 15 years <laughs> and represented the United States some years back um, in the biggest stage for chocolatiers in the world in Paris called um, Le Masters de Chocolat. And he was the United States representative finishing in the five, top 10, which was just an incredible accomplishment for him and for the, for the company and for, for the country. Um, so once again, it's about um, empowering your team, finding the right people, giving them the tools to be successful and, um, and allowing them to be as good as they can be. And that's how an organization's foundation and that's how a company grows. Sure. Sure. When you've had the type of success that you've had, um, you're not going to do everything right, right? Along the, along the way, you're going to make some mistakes. Are there any mistakes that kind of stick out that you share with us? And also, based on what they were, what did you learn from them? Oh, my gosh. There's just probably more than I can <laughs> ever remember. I mean, it's, it's, it's not possible to start a company um, as an entrepreneur and not make mistakes. Um, you have to be somewhat of a risk taker. So you have to, you have to believe in the product and who you are. Um, but you know, and adversity. I mean, it, it happens. Things happen. How about 2008? I was ready to sign a, um, a big lease at Mercado. They were just digging the dirt in 2007. Yeah, yeah. That coffee shop in the middle of the square there was going to be a Norman Love Confection dirt dessert I, I restaurant. remember hearing that actually, yes. And some of my friends who I run around with that look after me that are a lot smarter than I said, you better grab some pine and <laughs> batter the hatches because this might be a difficult time. And sure. You know, and trying to to prepare the team. You know, what's to come? You know, you're, you're well aware in the business that you're in. And 2008 was a tough year, and uh, and nine, seven, eight, nine were were tough years. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, never deviating from quality and continuing to push forward. Just managing your business tighter, um, and somehow we were blessed to not lose a dollar in 2008. Wow. Um, but we were prepared to for the worst. Um, I mean, there has been so many, I mean, just the growth of a company and trying to, it took me from 2002 until 2010 to open my second store, Mm. you know, and making sure that the product was right, that we could move product from Fort Myers to Naples was our second store on Tamiami. And it's proven to be our most, you know, popular, busiest store. It's a wonderful store. And, um, the Naples, um, uh, 
customers have really supported our products here in in uh, in Southwest Florida. Um, but it's it's a it's a it's a constant battle every day, um, and learning you know designing a box. What do I know about designing a box? <laughs> well, you did you a know, good job. <laughs> it's it's you know finding the right partners, and yeah. it's it's every step of the way: the bag, the attention to detail, the service, the, the 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 merchandising, the the flavor selection, listening to customers. What do they want? Um, and making sure that you deliver product. And I've always felt that simplicity. You know, trying to create singular flavors, flavors that are easily identified, that Americans understand. Comfort foods, things that bring you back to your childhood. I mean, when I created peanut butter and jelly, I'm like, I can't believe how, <laughs> how popular that piece became. We can't get rid of it. People love it. It's the number one selling piece. Is it it really? reminds you of your childhood and like grandma's kitchen with Wonder Bread <laughs> squishing jelly out of a, you know, a bite when you're a kid. And this is a lot of the inspiration behind our, our chocolate is the trying to create flavors that, that Americans understand because Americans are customer, primary customers and trying to create flavors that bring you back to your childhood. Sure. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, and I think it creates a, a very loyal customer and loyalty is, uh, is forever. Do you have a favorite flavor? Of course. <laughs> I'm a chocolate, milk chocolate and caramel guy. Okay. So we do a, um, with Tahitian vanilla beans and, uh, Fleur de sal, salt, sea salt, which is a very important component in caramel. Caramel primarily is made from sugar, so it can be awfully sweet at times. So the sea salt is a very important part of it that helps to um, accentuate the caramel flavor and also to reduce some of the sweetness. And it's a really beautiful combination with a wonderful milk chocolate. Wow. One final question for you, Norman. Um, any advice you have for anyone who's stuck right now, anyone who is thinking about doing something else, following a passion, um, maybe looking to get into a career like yours, what kind of advice do you have for them? You know, I think that, you know, there are a few different things. When I graduated high school, there was only a few culinary schools in the country and they only offered associate's degree in the culinary arts. Today, you know, if you're looking and there's so many individuals that do career changes and, and want and this passion of getting in the kitchens, but there's ways of getting bachelor's degrees. There's a lot of the universities, um, whether it be Johnson and Wales University in Providence or um, um, uh, Culinary Institute of American Hyde Park and others throughout the country, opportunities for education, opportunities for extended education, I think is very important. But I think following your dream and following your passion. I mean, I always say in life, you have to be careful what you wish for. You know, I've always had a desire. I've always had the work ethic and I've always had the drive, but I think business has a, a certain percentage of luck, um, risk. Um, but I never compromise the integrity of the product. I come to work every day. The team comes to work every day to try to do something right to try to make something the best that we possibly can do every day. And that it's not so good today isn't good enough for me. I'm a, uh, a very detail-oriented, <laughs> um, driven guy that wants to be perfect every day. And the standards are high within our organization, but you know we work hard every day with six locations to try to make every experience for every guest equally pleasant, um, educational and enjoyable each and every time they come in our stores or call our call center or visit our website. So as businesses grow, it doesn't get better. It gets harder. Um, I've learned that, you know, sometimes the early humble beginnings were more fun, <laughs> but today, you know, with business and all that encompasses, um, creates a lot of, uh, a lot of work, um, by, a, uh, by a huge team that care and come to work every day to be excellent.
Wow. Norman, thank you so much for doing this today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, so many of us enjoy your products, but don't know enough about you. So this was a great way for us to really get to know who Norman Love is. So I thank you for that. I look forward to your expansion throughout the state and, and, and further down the road. And I wish you continued success. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.